When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Ask the Expert with Steph. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Ask the Expert. I can't wait to dive right in and get to know the three gents we're focusing on today, the Brothers Plantagenet. I know I'm not alone when I say how exciting I find this family. And of course, although it isn't technically Tudor, it is the story that leads up to it. So without further ado, I'm pleased to introduce historical writer and author Derek Burks to the show with us to chat about Edward IV, George, Duke of Clarence, and none other than the most polarizing character of all time, Richard III. Welcome to the show, Derek. Hi, it's, uh, it's great to be on the show. Um, and, and what a fabulous group of brothers to talk about. Um, I know, it's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, th- these these guys probably uh, have created more written word collectively than, than any other group of brothers I can think of. Um, they're, they're, they're very different, though. I mean, the, the, what we're talking about, in case anybody's not entirely sure, is uh, we're talking about the three or three of the sons of uh, Richard Plantagenet, Duke of York, who was the head of one of the most prominent noble families in England in the 15th century. Yes, I, I, I think it's actually really important for our listeners who aren't necessarily confident in their Plantagenet history that we, com- we, we cover some of those basics. So actually, since you bring up who their father is, why don't you go ahead and tell us who these three brothers are and where they came from? Okay, well... Uh, the eldest of the three brothers is, uh, I think you mentioned earlier, Edward IV, becomes Edward IV. Uh, he, he's the eldest son of uh, Richard, Duke of York. And essentially, he is groomed to take his father's place in whatever role his father might ultimately have. His father doesn't necessarily uh, intend to end up as king, but the Ed- Edward, the eldest son, will obviously succeed his father in whatever his father is doing. So he, when his father is killed, he takes up his father's claim to the English throne, and that's in 1461, and, and he then becomes eventually Edward IV. Now, George is his younger brother. In fact, both George and Richard are too young to play any part in that initial section of the Wars of the Roses. Um, but George, as the next eldest brother, once Edward becomes king, he becomes his presumed heir until Edward has children of his own. So George is a, is a very important man in his own right because of that. And he becomes Duke of Clarence. Now, the, the youngest brother, Richard, who probably <laughs> most people have heard of as the Richard, Duke of Gloucester and Richard III later on, he is, again, much younger than, uh, than Edward and uh, only really becomes prominent 
from about 1470 onwards. And uh, he's very supportive of his elder brother. And um, as we know, ultimately, he takes the throne himself. So those are the three people we're talking about. This brief interruption is brought to you by, well, me. Do you love Tudor's Dynasty? Consider becoming a patron on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of amazing things that the everyday listener does not. Find out more by going to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Tudor's Dynasty, and click Become a Patron for details. All right, back to the show. Now, you had mentioned a couple of times that, that there's a somewhat significant age difference between these three brothers. Do you know how, how big of a jump it was from when one was born to the next? Because I don't think that people really understand just how far apart they were. Yeah, and this is quite critical, really, in understanding the relationship between the brothers. The first thing to remember is that though we're talking about three brothers, there were actually four. The fourth being Edmund, the second eldest son of the Duke of York. In fact, there are also four other brothers who died young, so their mother had a pretty busy time. Um, but but Edward and Edmund were the brothers who were closest um, until Edmund's early death in, when he was about 16. Um, by contrast, George was six years younger than Edward. And... Um, Richard, almost 10 years younger than Edward. Um, now, I'm about six years younger than my older brother, and I know that growing up, I was a bit of a pain, you know. So like most little brothers, they were there to be loved by Edward, but also barely tolerated. So I think that relationship is something that, that we have to grasp in order to understand how he saw them. Well, that's a great segue then. How how do you think their relationship was as children? Because they weren't necessarily children, really, at the same time for very long. So how do you think no, they, their, their relationship... Sorry. No, that's okay. How do you think their relationship was in their younger years? Okay, well, basically, uh, they didn't see a lot of each other. Because, as I said, Edward really spent almost all his time with Edmund. Those were the two boys who were who were raised as potential royal heirs. They spent their time uh, at Wigmore Castle in in, in the, the west of the country, their father's main castle, and they were trained, uh, educated to be great men. Uh, by contrast, George and Richard spent a lot of their time with their mother or, or with neither parent and um, with their sisters, of which there were many. And uh, so they weren't groomed for in the same way as uh, the two older brothers, Edmund and Edward. So they, they, did, they very rarely would have, I suppose, perhaps during family gatherings, at Christmas, other uh, important celebration times, they may have got together as a family. But, but this was a kind of, if you imagine a sort of a power family of today, this was a power family. They were always doing something. They were always they always had an angle on every event that took place in the country and elsewhere. So um, Richard Duke of York and his wife Cecily Neville, they were they were a power couple. You know, they both came from very prominent noble families, and uh, the kids really 
uh, just did as they were told. Um, as I said, the, 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 for example, um, to show you how out of it George and Richard were, when we're in a particularly important, uh, critical time in 1459 at Ludlow, where... Uh, their father, Richard of Duke of York, is is challenging the king, Henry VI. Uh, when he loses and, and flees with Edward and Edmund, he leaves his wife, Cecily, and the other children, including George and Richard, at Ludlow. They're not important enough to be in any danger. And that sort of shows the difference in the way that they were regarded at that point. Before I move on from their childhood, we did get one question from our listeners. I love these rumor mill questions because I always like to hear your <laughs> take on it. So we did get one question about your thoughts on on the future Edward IV potentially having been illegitimate. Have you heard that before? I have heard that many times. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's very popular with with fiction writers, um, but there is actually no evidence for it at all. Um, given the reputation of Edward's mother, Cecily Neville, um, I think it's extremely unlikely that she would have strayed from her marriage vows. Um, th this is a rumor that first circulated when. Uh, when Warwick was trying to work out how to make George king. And um, and it, it cropped up then as, well, you know, maybe we could say Edward's illegitimate. And then again in 1483, when Richard claimed the throne or seized the throne, one of the things he first claimed was that his brother Edward was illegitimate. Now, we can judge its reliability by the fact that at the time it was it was viewed as ludicrous. Perhaps Richard hadn't thought through what his mother, who was still very much alive, might think about this slur upon her character. However, he, he found a better reason shortly afterwards, which was to suggest that Edward's sons were illegitimate rather than Edward himself. So there's really not any evidence for it. Okay, that was a great answer, and there were a lot of teasers in there, and I am not going to let you continue talking about Richard just yet, because we are definitely going to no. come back to all of that. That's a, I'm, like, jumping out of my skin, waiting to get to the Richard III stuff, but we're not there yet. Okay, so we don't think uh, Edward is illegitimate, and we will move on. So now, Edward IV, as we know, obviously, ultimately becomes Edward IV. What was what did his life look like leading up to him taking over the throne from Henry VI? Did he always plan that? Was that something that his family was looking to do forever, or how did that come to be? It it all these things are always a bit complicated because after the event, everything looks very clear, very clear cut and deliberate. But like most things at the time. It's all rather helter-skelter and haphazard. So uh, I mentioned earlier that uh, Edward's father, Richard, Duke of York, was killed. Uh, well, he was, he was killed after a battle called the Battle of Wakefield, uh, one December in 1460. And 
From that moment on, Edward became the head of the Yorkist faction. So at that point, he could have said, all right, we're not doing it anymore. We're just going to give up and I'll leave the country and not bother fighting anymore. Or he could take up the challenge and take on uh, Henry VI and overthrow him. Um, basically, the Queen, Henry's Queen, Queen Margaret, Margaret of Anjou, really ensured that Edward had very little choice. He either had to leave or he had to fight uh, because she was determined at that point to eliminate him as a possible threat to her husband. So he chose to fight. And he's only, what, 18 at the time. And uh, it's very unlikely, even at the time, even his friends at the time, would have found it difficult to believe that he could actually be the leader they needed. They had Warwick. Richard, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, was far and away the most prominent and wealthy noble in England. And he was on the Yorkist side. He was a kind of mentor to young Edward. But make no mistake, Edward himself was the driving force behind the move to take the throne. And he, he was never defeated in battle. Even at a young age, he was an inspiration in the battlefield. And um, he managed to, to win against the odds, really. Um, and suddenly he was king uh, at the age of 18 or 19. And so it, he was probably as shocked as anyone, actually. Now, moving on to his marriage. His personal life and his romantic life seems to be such a focus with so many people. And sometimes it, it's, it's, I mean, it's interesting. So I understand it. I understand people's points of view, but it, it's almost unfortunate because as you just mentioned, he really was uh, a force to be reckoned with on the, on the battlefield and, and in his, uh, during his reign, he really had a lot of accomplishments besides his romantic life, but that's what people want to talk about. So I'm going to move on to <laughs> his wife, Elizabeth Woodville. Can you tell us about their meeting and their ultimate marriage? Well, yes, it's it's one of those things that, of course, um, many, many people talk about when they talk about Edward IV. It's almost the first thing they talk about is marriage. Um, we don't actually know for certain, when he first met uh, Elizabeth Grey, as she was then. She was a widow uh, of a Lancastrian who had been killed uh, in the, in the run-up to Edward taking the throne. She had two sons already, two young sons. Um, but clearly, whenever Edward first met her, he was attracted to her. Now, there's a caveat here. I should warn you that Edward was attracted to virtually any good-looking woman. So he had a history of uh, womanizing, and uh, he clearly liked that lifestyle. So the fact that he was attracted to any woman was not exactly a surprise. The surprise is that he married her. And again, uh, why would this happen when he hadn't married anybody else, or at least as far as we know. <laughs> but that's another issue. Um, so the story goes, or one of the story goes, that, that Edward promised marriage to her 
if if she would get into bed with him, so to speak. It was the only way he could woo her. And um, and at the end of the day, he had to carry out his promise. Now, I can sort of imagine that Edward would have used that ploy before with other women. And then, obviously, once he'd gone to bed with them, he probably lost interest and and uh, just forgot about his his, pro- his promise. But, yeah, that's what we're told. Now, I think, basically, he, he probably did marry for love. Whether he was marrying for lust initially, I don't know. But clearly there was a bond between them, at least to start with. Sounds extremely romantic when you put it like that. Now, speaking of other women that he may have promised that to... There are whispers of him potentially having been engaged to be married or betrothed to others as well. Um, do you know any? Do you know of any of those other women? Well, the the most uh, frequently mentioned one is uh, Eleanor Butler, Lady Eleanor Butler, um, who allegedly Edward was betrothed to or was supposed to marry. Uh, some years earlier, some years before he married, uh, before he even became king. So the the question is, if he was already contracted to marry Eleanor Butler, then his marriage to Elizabeth Woodville or Elizabeth Grey was uh, not valid, and any children of that would obviously be illegitimate. Again, you've, you've got to look, I think, in terms of what credence we give to that, when was it revealed? When was it made a big thing of? And that really is when Richard III, or Richard, Duke of Gloucester, is looking for a way of proving that Edward's children are illegitimate. And for me, this revelation is just a bit too neat for Richard, just at the very moment when he needs uh, something to justify his seizure of the throne, along comes uh, a bishop who happens to have this story about uh, Edward having a previous marriage contract. I mean, there's no question that he didn't actually marry Eleanor Butler, but in those days, if you were contracted to marry someone, then that was more or less the same. Now, moving back to the brothers together. Um, once Edward is made king, he he kind of notoriously gave them lands and wealth, and he did he did really well by them. So, do you feel that this was a show of love for his his brothers, or do you think this was essentially quote buying their loyalty? Well, I think it's both in a way. One of the things that I like about Edward, one of the things I admire about him is his generosity, uh, both to friends and enemies. He was too generous for his own good at times. Um, So in terms of his brothers, he was naturally inclined to be generous to them. And in the case of George, in Edward's first reign after 1461, obviously, as I said earlier, George was vitally important because if, if... Edward was run over by a runaway cart or something, um, George would be king. He would be the next king. 
So George had to be showered with, with, with rewards because that was politically necessary because George had to have a, a power base and lands that befitted that status. Um, so it was partly in the case of George being generous, it was also being politically savvy to the fact that his potential successor needed power. Um, in the case of Richard, it's a bit different because until 1470, Richard wasn't really that important. Um, but after 1470, this whole business of rewarding his brothers is rather muddied by uh, the marriages of the two brothers and the rivalry there is between George and Richard. Um, now, we, we may get onto this later, but basically, um, this is all about the legacy of the Earl of Warwick. The Earl of Warwick had no sons and two daughters. George marries one, and Richard ultimately marries the other. And between them, they split this enormous inheritance of the Earl of Warwick. And they argue about it. It's really quite a bitter rivalry um, between the two brothers in, in the early 1470s, to the extent that uh, George tries to prevent Richard from marrying Anne Neville by keeping her a prisoner in his own house. And Richard sort of breaks in. I guess there's another romantic story there in a way. Richard breaks in and takes her away and uh, takes her off to marry. Um, so th this whole business of the Warwick inheritance rather changes Edward's attitude towards how he rewards the two brothers. You know, we're not trying to focus on the women here, but since we're on the topic of this feud between... Why not? I know, Why not? That's, that's where I'm going. Let's talk about them. <laughs> so we're talking about Richard and George having both married... Now, Richard of Gloucester, Richard Duke of Gloucester at the time, marries Anne Neville, who is the younger daughter, is that right, of, that's right, of the yes. Earl of Warwick. And his older daughter, Isabel, is who married George Duke of Clarence. So that's right. There is this notorious feud now between the two brothers and the inheritance. But what is the ladies' perspective here? Are they happy that they married these two guys? Are they fighting between themselves and sticking by their man? Are they like, oh my gosh, get us out of this? We don't want either one of them. What do you think the the position was of of the two women? Well, I th I think that. Um... Their position really reflects the, the position of, of noble women in that time period. As sisters, there's absolutely no evidence that they didn't get on. Uh, they may well have, have got on quite well in their childhood as they grew up. But as soon as they marry, it's as if they become a different being <laughs> in the sense that... Isn't that always how uh, it goes, right? <laughs> <laughs> when, when Isabel marries George... Uh, it's a political alliance, um, and therefore she is she's a pawn, if you like, in the whole political situation at the time in 1469, and the marriage cements an alliance. So whether she has any great... Well, she doesn't have any say whatsoever in who she marries. That's her father's decision, and um, much though... From the modern viewpoint, you know, we would lament that. We have to accept that that is a fact of the time period we're talking about. And Anne is 
she's in an even worse situation because uh, she initially married the Lancastrian heir, uh, Prince Edward, the son of Henry VI and Margaret of Anjou. Again, she was a bargaining counter uh, in that very unlikely alliance that took place there between her father, Richard Earl of Warwick, and, and Margaret of Anjou, who were inveterate enemies, yet she was the bargaining counter. And she was actually, she stayed with, the, with Queen Margaret in France while Warwick uh, rebelled against Edward the, Edward the Fourth, so so Anne was used as a as a sort of a pawn there, and then lo and behold, when that all falls through, she's still a pawn because she's an heiress. She's such a huge heiress. That's the thing. Um, to give you an idea, it, it's said that, uh, and this may be exaggeration, but I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration that. Um, Richard Earl of Warwick had such large land holdings that you could walk from one end of the country to the other, from south to north, and not set foot on anybody else's land. So we're talking about a massive inheritance, not just a run-of-the-mill one. Um, and, and that explains why these two women are put in the position they're put in, which is not great, to be honest, for either of them. Now, her father, uh, the Earl of Warwick, is is known also as the kingmaker because he he really is kind of the pulling the strings, you know, from from behind the scenes in a lot of these situations. What do you think made him decide that he could start this kind of rebellion with George, the Duke of Clarence, and get him on the throne above Edward. What do you think the impetus behind that was? Okay, well, well let's just for a minute address the word kingmaker, uh, because I've, I've written a lot in the past <laughs> trying to uh, rubbish this whole idea of him being a kingmaker. Oh, go for um, it then. Yeah, tell us. <laughs> the thing is that um, he, he could, you can call him the kingmaker, but the only trouble is he doesn't make any kings. He tries... But if he's a kingmaker, he's a failed kingmaker. He's a serial failed kingmaker. Um, he's often credited with with uh, making Edward the Fourth king, for example. But again, when you look at the reality of what happened, yes, his power and wealth were certainly very important. But as I said to you before, what what matters is in a king is do people believe that that person can be king. You can't have a shadow as a king. And Edward was his own man. Unfortunately for Warwick, he didn't realise quite how much of his own man Edward was until a bit later on. Um, so basically, Warwick believes that Edward is someone he has put on the throne. That's how he sees it. But Rather arrogant. Yeah, very yes, because he sees himself as the as the most important man in Europe. He sees him without you know any exaggeration. He he thinks that he is that important that he should be dealing with princes and kings, and that's that's his sort of status level. He may be right. He was very powerful and very wealthy, um, and I, I should say he was also extremely capable. 
in in almost every way. You know, he was he was a superstar of the period. Um, but and perhaps because of that, when Edward married uh, someone that he wasn't expecting him to marry, um, and brought to court this coachload of his wife's relatives, uh, all anxious for advancement, uh, Warwick was perhaps understandably a bit um, a bit annoyed, um, and so it rather sort of jarred relationships between uh, Edward and Warwick, and it never improved. It just got worse. Um, Edward trying to ensure that he was independent of Warwick, Warwick trying to ensure that his influence was dominant. And really, since Edward was king, there was only one way in the end that Warwick would be able to overcome him, and that was to depose him. Well, along comes George. <laughs> George was um, handsome, charming, witty, eloquent, uh, like his elder brother. Um, but he was beholden to Edward for everything he had. And he was also, unfortunately, ambitious, jealous and greedy. And here was a man who was ripe for exploitation, and Warwick saw that very clearly. So he promised George a lot. He tempted him to, to separate from Edward, to, to plan a different life as, as king. That's, how, that's, the, the, that's what he sold to George. And, of course, he cemented that, as I said earlier, by, by marrying him to his own daughter. And, of course, that was not for George's benefit, though George thought it was, it was for Warwick's benefit because it meant that he was marrying his daughter into the potential royal family. So um, despite the fact that Edward had provided fantastically for, for George in the first part of his reign, George was tempted to um, look elsewhere for an alternative. And... Probably the main reason why he became dissatisfied is when George suggested that he might marry Isabel Neville, Edward forbade him to marry her. Now, fairly obviously, Edward, the last thing Edward wanted was for his younger brother, and he would have known a fair bit about George's character, uh, that his younger brother should marry the wealthiest heiress in the land, who was the daughter of the man who was resentful and antagonistic towards him. So we do have another question about the Battle of Barnet. Is that the proper way to Barnet? Barnet. Barnet. Um, yeah. yeah. Because this is where. George kind of gets back on Edward's good side. There was a poet uh, I read that, that said the knot was knit again between the brothers. So in the timeline of their feud, where does that battle fall? Okay, well, it's an it's a, it's a extremely confusing period of time, <laughs> around about 1469 to 1471. That's where the battle falls within that period, and the betrayal and uh, reconciliation also fall within that period. So, in a nutshell, 
basically, uh, in 1469, uh, Warwick and George take over, a kind of coup d'etat. Edward is taken prisoner. Uh, there's, there's a battle where uh, some of Edward's supporters are, uh, are killed. And basically, Warwick is in charge, except that Edward is still alive, still in England, and the country quickly becomes a shambles because Warwick, neither Warwick nor George have got any authority for ruling. So in the end, uh, Warwick ends up having to release Edward and uh, they sort of sit in different corners being disgruntled with each other. It's quite ridiculous, really. But basically... But that's brothers. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that's right. Um, and uh, so the following year in 1470, clearly both Warwick and George are disaffected. There's no question about that. But but the thing, here's the thing. They, they've rebelled against him and he doesn't punish either of them, which you might think is odd, but it's, it's fairly consistent with Edward because Edward will forgive his worst enemy. He'll give them a chance. Unlike any ruler I can think of offhand, Edward would always try reconciliation with anybody, not just his brothers. So he doesn't act against them. And, of course, that's a mistake because, because they act against him. This is where uh, Warwick makes this uh, really ridiculous deal with Queen Margaret of Anjou in France. I mean, Warwick and Margaret were enemies, pure and simple, except that both of them were out of power. That's the only thing they had in common. So they make an alliance, a very unlikely alliance, uh, in 1470, and to cut a long story short, Edward is ousted from power by Warwick and and flees abroad. So this time, Warwick has, uh, has thought it through. So he needs an authority, he needs a, a, a power that justifies whatever he does. So he wheels the old King Henry out of the tower to be king again. Uh, this is when uh, what they what they call the readaption takes place, where Henry the Sixth uh, is put back on the throne for a while. A very bewildered Henry the Sixth, I might add. He doesn't know what the heck's going on, um, and so that basically, if we leave it at that point, we'd reckon that that's the end of Edward. Edward IV is no longer king, and he's in exile, and so on. But Edward is not to be uh, not to be beaten, and he he slips back into the north of England, and uh, gradually builds up support and marches south towards London, where the government and Warwick and George are, and he gathers such support that there's clearly going to be a decisive battle, and that battle is the Battle of Barnet. So, on the eve of that battle. Edward makes stringent efforts to prize George away from Warwick because he knows that it's going to be very difficult to defeat Warwick if George and all the resources he has are on Warwick's side. Now, if we look at it from George's point of view, what is there in this new alliance with Margaret of Anjou for George? There is nothing. He was expecting to get the throne with help from Warwick 
Now the throne belongs again to the Lancastrians. He's never going to get the throne because Henry VI has a young son, Edward, who will become king after him. So George is persuaded pretty easily that there's nothing in it for him by staying with Warwick. And so he changes sides. And um, they then go to the Battle of Barnet. And uh, that, the Battle of Barnet in itself is, is worth an hour's podcast because it's the most ridiculous battle you've ever heard of. Uh, it's fought in, a, in de- heavy fog. And uh, most of the time, nobody on the battlefield has the remotest idea uh, who's winning for a kickoff and then sometimes who they're fighting. And to the extent that at times they're fighting their own allies. Um, so it's a, it's a disastrous battle. Um, Warwick is killed. That's the important thing. And so when Queen Margaret of Anjou eventually arrives in England, she finds on that very day that Warwick has been killed at Barnet and she's now in a position of weakness. And a bit later on, about a month later, at Tewkesbury, the, the three royal brothers combine again and totally destroy the House of Lancaster. Now, where was Richard throughout the whole story that you just told about, you know, George kind of going back and forth yeah. and his, on which side he's on? Because Richard is, is typically described as loyal to, to his brother Edward all the time. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, very much so. Um, again, I, I guess that in the early years, there's a lot of, of sort of hero worship, really, as far as Richard's concerned towards Edward. Remember, Edward's nearly 10 years older than he is. So, you know, he's he's not someone he's, he's an equal of in any sense. Uh, he regards clearly Edward as being very much his, his, uh, his elder and uh, someone to emulate. Now, in actual fact, Barnet is the first time that uh, Richard is given command of part of one of Edward's armies. And he distinguishes himself to an extent. Um, he's about 18 at that point, if I remember rightly. Um, but it, as I say, it's a very confusing battle. But, but he, he leads one of the wings of the army. And at Tewkesbury, a month later, he also does the same again. And so, if you like, he, he rather earns his spurs, as they say, in those two battles and makes a reputation for himself on the battlefield, um, which he previously didn't have. He also is instrumental, I think, in persuading George to join Edward again. Because remember that George and Richard were much closer in age and had, had a longer history together than, than, than they did with Edward. So... It's not that surprising that that Richard might be one of the go-betweens to try and persuade George to to change sides again. Now, just one of these little tidbits that I know we have to touch upon as we're sitting here talking about, you know, that that Richard was loyal and he was he had this hero worship, and then he actually proved himself on the battlefield to be somewhat of a good soldier. Things like that. We have to talk about the scoliosis that that is associated with Richard III all the time. Was it as big of a deal as people are making it out to be now? Because if he was, you know, this awful crookback, you know, how how could he have fought in 
these battles and been good at it. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, he certainly, I mean, the evidence shows us that he did have scoliosis. I don't think uh, there's any doubt about that. But also uh, his exploits at the time, I mean, it's clear that he didn't, he didn't just command. He did actually play an active part in the fighting. Um, so uh, he, he obviously survived those occasions. So it's not as if he was a particularly bad soldier or incapable of fighting. Um, and so I think um, it's, it's strange. It's one of those things that, that amuses me a little bit, the whole scoliosis thing, is that for, for hundreds of years he's been described as a hunchback. And those who see Richard as something of a saint have said, no, this is just due to propaganda. Now, clearly, there was some basis, not for him being hunched back, but certainly for uh, some deformity of, of, his, of his arm, one of his arms. And so, you know, I think it's, um, it's interesting that, that that is not mentioned much at the time. So that suggests to me that people might have said, oh, yeah, well, he's, he's got this problem, but actually, you know, he's okay. You know, it's, it's all right. It, it doesn't affect him too much. Um, that's the way I see it, really. I'm sure as we continue talking about Richard, you'll see where I stand on things, <laughs> but we'll wait for the, for a few more minutes on that one. Let's talk about George's death. So now he's gone back and forth a bunch of times, but we are going to settle on that he was somewhat of a traitor with his brother. So the first question that somebody had asked us, one of our listeners had asked us about when it comes to the three brothers together, did Richard try to defend George's position when it came to when it came time to uh, have to decide if he was going to die or not? Did Richard side with him, or did he say, "Yep, you deserve this this time"? <laughs> the short answer is we really don't know. We've no evidence at all that anyone either persuaded Edward to execute him or tried to persuade Edward not to execute him. I think the thing we, we all know about Edward IV is that he rarely did anything he didn't want to do. Um, there's no question also that Edward regretted executing him. He didn't want to execute him. But um, I don't think, uh, I don't see any reason necessarily why, why Richard would have defended him. He might have asked Edward uh, not to actually kill him. But to be honest, given what... Richard and George had gone through in the previous, you know, five or six years, Richard was not George's greatest friend and ally. He was a rival to George uh, and quite a bitter one at times in the past. So, so I, I don't, it doesn't ring true to me really that he would, that certainly that he would make any great defense of George uh, to Edward. Well, as we know, he, he does ultimately end up being executed. There are tons of stories floating around about how that happened. And I would love to just give you the floor if you want to tell us the theories and the rumors and then what actually happened as far as how he was executed. Right. Okay. Well, um, the traditional thing about George's death 
is that um, he was drowned in, in a what was known as a, a butt of Malmsey wine, so a kind of barrel of of sweet wine, and of course, everyone says immediately after that statement, "What a great way to go." Um, I'm not sure drowning is a great way to go at any point, whatever you're drowning in. But uh, where did this start? <laughs> Uh, basically, um, it, it starts when, um, in in the time period shortly after it, there's a suggestion that he was killed in a bath. There's no mention of wine, but just that he was killed in a bath. Um, some other commentator at the time mentions his execution and uh, rather mysteriously uh, says his execution, however that may have come about. Um, so it doesn't actually say anything, but, but the, the way he phrases it suggests it's unusual. Um, it's, it's obviously a private execution, which, which suggests that either Edward just didn't want to make a big thing of it, or because often executions of that sort could well be public, but... Uh, or it suggests he didn't want uh, the family to be drawn too much uh, out into the open on that that whole rather unpleasant issue. Um, but the idea that it, that he was drowned in wine doesn't actually start until the 16th century, the Tudor period, and it it becomes uh, suggested by uh, historians. Well, historians is probably an accurate term, but but chroniclers of the time. Uh, Polydor Virgil and Sir Thomas More uh, talk about uh, that being his his fate. But there's no actual evidence from the time period itself that that's how he was executed. It's become a, one of those things that everybody assumes was the case, but, I mean, a lot of things about the Wars of Roses fit that. Uh, there's no evidence for it at all. Just continue, people just continuing to talk about it and then accepting it as, as truth. Exactly. And the internet has done a lot to help those, those things. Oh, we love the internet when we're talking history, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you can find proof of anything you want to find. <laughs> so, all right, now we're going to, we're going to go ahead now and move on to a little bit more of a focus around Richard. We haven't had a lot to talk about him thus far because George really, <laughs> George really took over a lot, and he he made himself quite the spectacle up until his death. So now um, he's gone, and Richard takes over because Edward passes away. So let's talk about that scene. Why does it become Richard? Uh, how is Edward dying? Where are his sons? You know where I'm going with this. I do, I do. <laughs> um, yeah, this is this is something I've spent a fair amount of time thinking about. You wouldn't believe it, but I, I've spent many hours trying to work out, because like many other people, uh, I've got very little to go on in terms of exactly what happened and why. The, the root cause of the problem is the fact, obviously, that Edward IV died. And he died suddenly. He didn't die as a result of a long, drawn-out illness or anything like that. And his death rather caught people unawares. 
they weren't expecting it. And when you're not expecting an event, an event of, of that sort, it has a big impact. No one was ready. No one was in the right place. Uh, no one knew what they were going to do. They were just reacting. So that's the first issue. Um, when something sudden happens, something as cataclysmic as the death of, of A, the king, but B, someone perhaps in, in Richard's case uh, is, is your brother, in the case of Elizabeth Woodville is your husband, you know, there are, there are raw emotions there. And we sometimes tend to forget that these people are human beings. Uh, they're not just ciphers on the history page. Uh, so how does it come about that, that Richard ends up as king? Basically, um, Richard believes that his power will be diminished if the young Edward V, Edward's, Edward IV's son, uh, becomes king. Initially, um, Richard thinks that he can perhaps work with the young prince, although he has not had a lot of contact with him in the intervening years. The young prince is about 12, and uh, he hasn't seen much of his uncle Richard in that time when he's growing up. He's seen a lot of his governor, uh, Sir Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers, who is the Queen's brother. So Richard believes that, that perhaps if Edward, the, the young Edward V becomes king, his own influence may be uh, not as great as it was. He's currently more or less ruling the north of England on behalf of the crown. And he suspects that that may not continue. So I don't think Richard sets out to seize the throne in April 1483 when, when uh, Edward IV dies. I think he sets out to try to preserve his own position. Uh, hopefully by taking control of the young king and um, taking away other influences, Elizabeth Woodville and Anthony Woodville and so on. So that, I think, is where, where he starts. That's, that's his basic starting point. Now, the trouble is that Richard fundamentally doesn't understand how people work at court. He doesn't spend much time at court. He's in his own little world in the north. And what he doesn't understand is that people will be rather appalled if they find that sudden violent action is taken against courtiers. And up until about June, they're happy to go along with Richard being in charge. It's perfectly reasonable that the king's, the dead king's brother should be a kind of protector of the realm and take responsibility for his nephew, uh, the new young king. Up until that point, everybody thinks, well, Elizabeth Woodville doesn't, but, but everybody thinks that at court that that's fair enough uh, and life goes on. But suddenly, in the middle of June, Richard executes, summarily executes without trial, William Hastings, one of the dead king's oldest friends and supporters, whose loyalty to the crown is unquestionable. He suddenly executes him and arrests a number of others. Now, this 
as they say, puts the cat among the pigeons. This disturbs people because if someone like Hastings, who is known for his support of the regime, can be just plucked aside very suddenly, what's going to happen to anybody else? So it, it really unsettles the court. And to the extent then that, that Richard feels suspicious about others, whether there's any grounds for it or not, and he gradually moves towards, in June, he gradually moves towards the idea that he will have to take control personally. He's not going to better control the young king. It's better to take the throne himself. And that's what he then goes on to do. Okay. So now he has taken the throne for himself. And I can't spend too much time <laughs> on what on the fate of the princes in the tower, because also just for, I'm sure everybody knows this already, but just to clarify, um, Edward IV's two young sons were both now in the tower. What is your position? And I won't even say anything after you tell us, we will move on to the next question. But what do you what do you think is the we and we know that there is no evidence, but what do you we just like to ask people, right? What is your the likeliest theory of what happened to the prince? Okay, well what I try to do um in this period generally is I try to avoid um following any particular idea that's been expressed a lot or not. And I look at the people involved and not what people said, but what they did, because I always think that's the best way to proceed. Now, as you rightly said, we've no evidence either way about what happens to the princes. But I look at what um, what happened after their disappearance. There's no question they disappear. I think everybody agrees on that. Um, and for me, it's down to Richard. Whatever happens is down to Richard because it happens on his watch. Now, does he order their execution? I don't know. Maybe. Does somebody else, a lesser being in his, in his service, decide that it would be rather a good idea to get rid of them? I mean, rather like Henry II and Beckett when he says, will no one rid me of this troublesome priest? Is it maybe a, a, somebody at the tower who thinks, well, what sort of reward am I going to get if I actually get rid of these two kids who are in the way, really? What a great point, yeah. So, I mean, but even if that is the case, again, I mean, just as Henry II is responsible for the death of Becket, Richard III is responsible if the princes are killed. So, so there have been all sorts of theories put forward, um, some... I think, worryingly lightweight. Um, one suggestion is that uh, Margaret Beaufort, Henry Tudor's mother, uh, was responsible for them being killed. Um, Margaret Beaufort had no access to the tower at all. Um, I can't see how it would help her at all, since at that point in time, 
her son was not actively trying to invade England or become king. And in fact, um, in practice, she had no access to the tower. Now, the other likely suspect, many would suggest, was the Duke of Buckingham, Henry Stafford, Duke of Buckingham. Now, this is even more farcical from my point of view, because Buckingham was a chocolate teapot. Buckingham was hopeless. He couldn't organise anything. If you ask Buckingham to ensure that the two princes were dead, that's the most likely chance of keeping them alive. He was hopeless. And the evidence for that is that despite the fact that he was married to one of the Woodvilles, despite the fact that he was one of the most prominent noblemen in the country, Edward IV, who was a pretty good judge of men, never used him for any important command or responsibility. The only time he wheeled out Buckingham was for ceremonial duty. Buckingham was hopeless, as is shown later in the year when he tries to organise a rebellion and it all goes badly wrong. So the idea that, that the Duke of Buckingham is organised enough, even if he wanted to do it, which I'm not sure he would, but even if he did, was organised enough to organise something as complicated as eradicating two princes in a fortress like the Tower of London is just ludicrous in my, in my view. Um, we have to remember that the, the Tower was a fortress which was controlled by royal appointees. Um, it, it's difficult to see how somebody would have got away with getting in there and, and killing the princes or even getting the princes away, which is another suggestion that has been put forward, that they weren't killed, but that their disappearance is explained by the fact that they were spirited away. Um, I also look at Elizabeth Woodville, their mother. She is in sanctuary in Westminster at the time, and shortly, well, I suppose about a month or two after they're supposedly killed, or at least when they disappear, she must have been convinced that they were dead. Because otherwise, why would she give the slightest support to Henry Tudor if her own sons were still alive? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't make any sense at all. So as far as she was concerned, she must have thought they were dead. And, um, you know, I think Richard has to carry the can since, as I said, he's the one responsible at the time. Um, so that's the way I see it. So basically you're saying it happened on his watch. Yep. So he's at fault. We just don't know if it was him. This is really one of those conversations where it's, you know, when people ask the question, if you could go back in time, <laughs> this is always the answer. Yeah. yeah. And I love hearing experts like you tell us your, your versions because everybody has their own thoughts and it's just such an that part. And now coming to the end of the three brothers. So now two of them are dead. Richard III is defeated in battle by Henry VI. So let, oh, sorry, Henry VII. Let's, who is Henry Tudor prior to becoming Henry VII. So let's talk about now 
the time leading up to the Battle of Bosworth and what it looked like for Richard at the battle. Obviously, it didn't turn out great for him. <laughs> but let's wrap up our, our brother's Plantagenet talk with now the death of Richard. Right, well, the, the thing about the Battle of Bosworth is that um, it didn't go according to plan for, for Richard, as you may have noticed. Um, That's true. <laughs> I don't think he went in thinking he was going to be not coming out alive. <laughs> no, quite. I mean, obviously, um, he had a massive army, far bigger than Henry's, on paper. As they say, battles aren't fought on paper, but... Um, he had he had thousands more, many thousands more men than Henry did, and uh, Richard believed that he would win. Uh, but the thing about battles, um, rather most of the Wars of the Roses battles, rather are, are rather unexpected in many ways, but um, difficult to predict what's going to happen. And even in this battle, where where it was so one sided. It, it it's amazing that it turned out as it did. And, and I, I need to explain that a little bit because it's not quite as straightforward as people might think if they read the, the account of what happened. Richard goes into the battle knowing that Thomas Stanley, one of his leading uh, nobles, has divided loyalties. And uh, there's nothing... You know, that that's a fact. We, nobody argues about that. Um, because Richard takes his eldest son hostage to ensure that Thomas fights on the right side in the battle. So as the battle is going on, Thomas Stanley's son is actually with Richard uh, at his camp. And the threat is that he will execute him if Thomas doesn't take part on his side. Well, I guess it's difficult. Again, a battle is an evolving event which nobody can predict what's going to happen. And the first thing that happens which nobody can predict is that the king's vanguard is, is cut to pieces by Henry's vanguard. Now, to, to be honest, Henry's vanguard is most of his army. So there's not much left apart from that. But they are driving back the king's army. Now, Richard looks across the battlefield to where Thomas Stanley is and expects that Thomas Stanley, at this point, should be charging in to help his rather beleaguered vanguard. Um, but Thomas Stanley's not doing anything at all. He's just sitting there. He, Richard also thinks, well, hang on a minute, I've got this massive 10,000-strong army behind me, commanded by the Earl of Northumberland. So he'll probably go to help the vanguard. No, Northumberland doesn't do anything either. So the two largest forces at Bosworth on Richard's side, one commanded by the Earl of Northumberland, one commanded by Thomas Stanley, between them they've probably got something like 15,000 men. Henry's total army amounts to less than probably 6,000. So if Thomas Stanley and the Earl of Northumberland wanted to, they could end that battle there and then. 
in, in Richard's favour. But they don't. Neither of them move. So Richard being Richard, uh, going in a straight line where at all possible, he decides he has to do something. So he decides, looking across the battlefield, in the distance, there are Henry's three, three standards, and around them there are very few men because Henry, as I said, has got very little left other than those he's already sent into battle. So Richard thinks, right, okay, so if I charge across the, the battlefield to directly to Henry and kill him, that's it done. Doesn't matter what anybody else does. Doesn't matter how well his vanguard's doing, because if I cut off the head, that's the end of it. So that's exactly what he does. He charges across the battlefield, directly at Henry with his most loyal household knights. So it's a mounted force. They're riding across to close the gap between himself and Henry. And that is the pivotal moment of Bosworth. He nearly succeeds. He gets so close to killing Henry. He kills a number of other people who are right next to Henry. <laughs> and not least one of his standard bearers. But he doesn't get to Henry. And that is because somebody else intervenes. Now, the funny thing is, I always think it's rather a quirky thing, that we all think that uh, Thomas Stanley's brother, Sir William Stanley, intervenes in the nick of time and saves Henry and kills Richard. Well, he does, but he had absolutely no way of knowing what the nick of time was. In other words, it's a matter of accident that he arrived before Henry was killed rather than afterwards. Um, and, and it amuses me a little bit because it's often portrayed as being a sort of well-orchestrated intervention. In fact, it, he could well have turned up and found that uh, he was staring... King Richard in the face, and there was no Henry Tudor anymore. So, uh, I mean, Richard died gloriously. He died um, fighting for his throne. Um, if you think about it, uh, it was a it was a brave way to go. Um, but a wiser king might have thought, okay, maybe I should uh, cut my losses and uh, see if I can go again a bit later. Just turn around. But that's, I mean, he, he seems, it seems to have been in character for him to just go for it, yeah, right? Yeah. In, in other situations that we've even just discussed today, that seems to be his MO. So definitely. I mean, you, you tried, right? That's all that matters. <laughs> so, uh, and then that is the end of the three brothers Plantagenet. Uh, that was a great conversation. Uh, I really feel like this is an interesting topic for so many people. We've covered so many things today. So I want to say thank you to Derek Burks for coming on. And if you would like to hear more, I mean, I know we've been talking for about an hour now, but there is so much more to cover. And thankfully, Derek has done this before. I know you had you had given me kind of a little look into what you're doing on the side or what you have done on the side before we actually started recording. So I want you I want to give you the floor now to tell our listeners 
about your books and about a podcast you've done and some some other places that we can we can hear your points of view and some things you found in in your research because this is really such a great topic and I know that you really are the expert on this wars of the roses situation. Okay, thank you. Uh, it's it's been great to talk. I think um I'm coming from it uh, from a history background. I used to teach history for many, many years. I, I taught this period uh, itself, uh, along with other things. Um, and my, I've been always interested in it. But uh, I then, uh, when I retired, I went into writing historical fiction. And because I was very interested in this whole period, um, I started to write a, a book about the period of the Walls of the Roses, and uh, it's called Feud. And it was the first book of what eventually became a nine-book series entitled The Wars of the Roses. Um, so that's that's where I started with all this in in recent years. I started by writing fiction, but a, but a fiction which is as far as I can as far as I can achieve it set in uh, accurate history. Um, it is. A long time ago, so we don't know. As we've discussed today, there's there's a lot of things we don't know. But um, I've tried to uh, to root the fiction in in history that I believe. Now, in the course of of uh, writing the books and publishing the books, um, many readers have have come back to me and said, "Well, what about so and so? What about so and so?" and so on. So. It is a big topic. It's a topic which is often regarded as extremely complicated. So I decided to do a few podcasts about the, the history rather than the fiction, the, the historical period itself, the whole Wars of the Roses. And I started off, I thought I'd do about uh, five or six podcasts about it. And I ended up doing 46. Now, these are short podcasts. They're about 15 minutes long. And they've been quite well received, particularly by students trying to wrestle with the topic and also by those who are just interested in the period. Um, so th they're free. You can get them on any uh, podcast provider, um, or, uh, Apple Podcasts or the others. I'm not going to mention too many brand names. But, uh, yeah, those. if anybody's interested in in finding out a bit more detail about some of these things. And also, obviously, today we've, we've flitted from one thing to another quite reasonably. Uh, but if you want to know a bit more detail and, and get the whole flow of the story, um, then why not check out the podcasts? Yes, and just, um, I can't recall if you actually said the name of the podcast, but for anybody listening who wants to check it out, it is called the Wars of the Roses podcast. It's, yes, that just in case there's any confusion, it's called that. In case there's confusion, <laughs> what the topic might be. But imagine that, right? You have, you said, what did you say? It was 46 or 47 episodes? 46, on, yeah. yeah. On the Wars of the Roses. Like, there's a lot to cover. So yeah. we appreciate you doing that for everybody. And another thing we appreciate, of course, is our listeners. And again, Ask the Expert could not be possible without the listeners who write in with their questions. And of course... Big thank you to Derek Burks for joining us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. You can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty.